Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Good morning, church. How you doing? That communion moment together was so beautiful with you. Wasn't it wonderful? Jana, thank you so much. That was a beautiful illustration of what we get to partake in as a community. So, um, yeah, that was beautiful. Hey, today is Palm Sunday. Um, Before we get into the teaching, I want to kind of like explain to you what does Palm Sunday actually mean? Some of you are like, like, are we supposed to have palm leaves like in the service? Like, is that what we're doing? Well, there is a reason it's called Palm Sunday and we'll get to it in the teaching. But Palm Sunday is is a, a moment in time represented in all four gospels in the Bible. And it's a very significant moment because it's it's the completion of Jesus's journey from Jericho into Jerusalem. Now, why is that so significant? It's so significant because of how he enters into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the holy city. It's considered, you know, the city of God. Like, and so Jesus has done us so much of his ministry and he's journeying to Jerusalem and how he enters Jerusalem is incredibly significant for how we see Jesus today. Now, back then, they didn't fully understand. Scripture actually says it wasn't until Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected that the disciples fully understood what Palm Sunday significance was. We get the privilege of of walking through Scripture because there has been so much uh, time where we've been able to understand what Scripture says. Like, the disciples didn't have that available to them. They, like, literally had to figure it out as to what does this mean. And so we're going to have a look through particularly the Gospel of Luke, Um, So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 19 is what we're going to be uh, looking at today. I'm just going to move this. And so we're reading about this triumphant entry of Jesus. So Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 38. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there or a donkey or a young young foal. You will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt. Its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They say this, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Amen. Amen. Up until this point, we've seen Jesus's ministry throughout all of Galilee and Samaria. 
And Jesus has done many things. His ministry included uh, teaching and instructing disciples. His disciples consisted of fishermen, taxmen, women, and zealots. Zealots were these like really passionate political people that were like wanted to take down the Roman Empire. And he engaged with religious leaders in various controversies. He heals a centurion's servant. He raises a widow's son from the dead. He dines with Pharisees. He's anointed by a sinful woman with an alabaster jar. He calms the storm at sea. He heals a demon-possessed man. He heals a bleeding woman. He dines with the tax collector Zacchaeus. He feeds a hungry multitude. He heals the crippled, lepers, and blind. And that's only just some of the things that Jesus did in his ministry. When we look at the ministry of Jesus, most of us could possibly relate to some of those people. Maybe you could identify with one of those people that I just listed. Maybe Jesus has brought you healing and you can relate to the crippled man or the bleeding woman. Maybe Jesus has helped you overcome your issues with finances and you can relate to Zacchaeus. Maybe Jesus has accepted you where society rejected you and you can relate to the sinful woman with the alabaster jar. All of us can find pictures of ourselves in the ministry of Jesus. All of us can see Jesus as maybe he's been a healer predominantly in your life. Maybe he's, he's been an advocate predominantly in your life. Maybe he's been a savior or a friend predominantly in your life. And all of those things, he is, but he's also more. And Palm Sunday reveals to us exactly who Jesus wants us to know him to be. The significance of Palm Sunday takes all of our thoughts about who Jesus is to us and shows us who he is. See, we read the ministry of Jesus and we're like, we can relate to who Jesus is to us. He was my healer. He is my healer. This is who Jesus is to me. Palm Sunday is significant because it is a declaration from Jesus as to who he is. See, when we encounter Jesus and he encounters our circumstances, often what we can do, if we're not careful, is we can put Jesus into a box based upon what he did for us in a moment. It's like, Jesus, you're my healer. I'll call on you when I need healing. Jesus, you're my advocate. I'll call on you when I feel like I'm socially outcast. Jesus, you're the one that brings healing to my body. You're the one that advocates for my social dynamic. You're, you're these particular things. So when I need you in that space, I'll call on you. And what do we actually do? We actually chain Jesus down to represent a Disney character that we can call on that's in a little bottle for when we need our wishes granted. We can do that to Jesus. And And to be honest, that's a lot of what the disciples saw. They saw Jesus on mission for their mission, for how they saw what their need was, what they wanted. They put Jesus in a box. And we all do it. And and it may not necessarily be because something bad's happened. It's because something good has happened. Jesus healed me. So I call on him when I need healing. And that's where we leave him. That's where we put him. A Palm Sunday is significant because Jesus, he's done and completed all of those things, but he makes this declaration he, as he rides into Jerusalem that he is king. If we're not careful, 
we can distort who Jesus truly is and compartmentalize him for only when we need him rather than letting him reign as king all the time. What type of person you are often determines what type of king you'll accept. Well, I'm, I'm wired this way, so I need this type of king in my life. I need this type of authority in my life. And you've prescribed what type of Jesus you want available to you. Palm Sunday challenges that mindset. Palm Sunday is Jesus riding in on a donkey, declaring he is king. Why is it important that we know the ministry of Jesus? Like, why is it important that we reflect on the ministry of Jesus to understand Palm Sunday? Well, let's have a look at what type of people Jesus encountered in his ministry. Disciples. He encountered the fishermen. He encountered the taxmen. He encountered women and zealots. What about the religious leaders? Jesus encountered them too. His ministry included the religious elite. A centurion. A centurion is the Roman elite soldier, right? Like the enemy of the Jews are the Romans. Jesus heals a centurion soldier. His ministry included a centurion, a widow, a widow and her her dead son. He raises her dead son, which this is so beautiful because in Jesus raising a dead son, she's also, he's also raising this woman's life because a woman's inheritance was through her son. And so he redeems her future by bringing life back to her son. And it's this beautiful moment. Pharisees, Jesus is literally recorded as dining with a Pharisee called Simon when he encounters the woman with the alabaster jar. He encounters the Pharisees. His ministry included the Pharisees. It included a sinful woman. It included men plagued spiritually by demonic forces. He covers that. It included a bleeding, unclean woman, woman and crippled and lepers, the outcasts, the rejected, the unclean, Jairus' daughter, a synagogue leader, another religious elite. Jesus heals Jairus' daughter. He encounters these type of people in his ministry. Why is this important for us to know? How is this connected to Palm Sunday? Because where we would like to put Jesus in a box of our context, Jesus actually says, my ministry has covered every type of society. My ministry has covered every type of person. My kingship permeates over all society, all creed, all preference, and all culture. That's important because he rides in as a king that has invaded every aspect of society. That is the king that he declares himself to be. His ministry and his declaration are so importantly tied together for us to understand who is, like Jana said, allowed to sit at the table. What kind of king is this? Well, what's with the palms, right? Anyone wondered, like, what's with the palms? Like, do you know what that means? Hey, we'll get to it, but first we're going to talk about a donkey. First, we're going to talk about a donkey. Verse 30 to 31, it says, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. This is Jesus declaring that he is the Lord. He's like, if they're asking who needs it, 
tell them it's the Lord. It's his declaration, I'm the Lord. <laughs> what type, what's so significant about a donkey, right? What type of donkey is this? Well, Jesus specifically says it's a never been ridden donkey. You're like, cool, like what? Just means it's like fresh. <laughs> I'm sure it was a fresh donkey. <laughs> what's the deal? Well, in Jewish custom, a king... A king's steed, so what, it would ri- uh, what a king would ride on, had to be a horse, or a, mainly it was like war horses, that had never been ridden before because no one else could sit on the horse of a king. No one could actually do what the king did. No one could have that seat. And so Jesus is saying, I need an unridden donkey because I need people to understand. He's tying his Jewish customs in and saying, I'm king. I'm king. I'm riding on this donkey that's never been ridden. He's specifying to all of his disciples and to all those on looking that this donkey is the donkey of a king. Now, let's talk about the fact that a donkey isn't typically what a king would choose to ride in on. In a triumphant procession, If you're going to choose between a war horse and a donkey, I'm going to say 100% of you would probably choose a war horse. And you can't say, no, I'd choose a donkey because Jesus chose a donkey because we we can see that now that it's a good choice. (laughs) You would for sure choose a war horse. I mean, I don't know if many of us would know how to ride that, but we'd choose something that is opulent that is strong, that, that elevates us, that shows to the world that we are in charge, that this is our reign. Jesus chooses a donkey. Why is this significant? This is so significant for the time because this is prophetic imagery that Jesus is completing that we find in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah the prophet, he declares this, Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. This is so important because for the Pharisees, the religious elite, for the disciples looking on, they see this as the fulfillment of a prophetic word. That Jesus is taking their Jewish historical prophetic words and he's saying, I'm completing it. It's coming to completion. Can you not see the illusions that I am completing right now in this moment? The prophetic word of Zechariah hundreds of years ago is is being fulfilled in this moment. Jesus riding on an unridden donkey. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Here we read not only that this king is righteous and victorious, but humble. Have you ever encountered like a righteous person? And when I say a righteous person, someone that like kind of holds you to account, like this is the right way of living. It's like, and there's, there's sometimes this like judgment that comes with it. Like people that are like, you should do A, B, C, and D, and this is righteousness. Now we could unpack if that truly is righteousness or not. But that's a big theological conversation for another day. But have you encountered people where they're like, they consider themselves righteous? And yet, often it comes with this sense of judgment and arrogance, much like the Pharisees. 
Or have you like encountered people who are really good at like sport and like they have another victory? The Avant Life soccer team scores another goal and they're victorious. And as much as I would like to say that they would accept that in humility, I know that there'd be a lot of like boasting and, you know, this proud, like, look at us go, we're amazing. Did you see that shot? Oh, I was so awesome. Why? Because that's our human nature. Yet Jesus actually, he's victorious and he's righteous, but he's humble in it. He doesn't choose his righteousness to be something that he gloats about. In fact, he invites us into it. He doesn't see his victory as something to be shouted from the rooftops as to the might and power of Jesus. He's humble in it. It doesn't remove his righteousness. It doesn't remove the fact that he's victorious. He just claims it in humility, not in power like the Romans did. This donkey is not an animal of opulence, might, or arrogance, but one of humility. And why is it important that it's never been ridden? Because no other king could deal in righteousness and victory with humility. No other king has been able to do that. No one else could sit on this donkey. Why? No one else could actually lay in that grave and overcome that grave. The funny thing is, we see this, these unprecedented moments in Jesus. No one's ridden on the donkey as king before like Jesus has in humility and victory and righteousness. The grave that Jesus was laid in after his crucifixion was a grave that no one had ever been laid in before because no one could actually do what he did in conquering it. And the throne that he sits on now is one that none of us could ever sit in. These moments of Jesus that we find through Palm Sunday are just unprecedented. It's never been done before. And it's unrepeatable. We can't do what he did. And that's the beautiful thing about the fact that Jesus is our king. Speaks to the type of king that rides into Jerusalem. A king of humility for his victory would not come in the form of military might or political power, but through humble righteousness. It's a sharp contrast to the kings that would ride in on stallions and war, war horses. He looks nothing like a king ready to overthrow the Roman Empire. However, the, di- the disciples are not swayed by this. They still have Jesus in a box. They still are holding on and hoping that the Messiah has come to free them from the Roman Empire. They want freedom from their slavery because their forefathers were freed from Egypt. And so they're believing and hoping for another exodus moment from slavery of the oppressor, not realizing that the oppression is from within because of a sinful disposition. Jesus has come for a different type of salvation. It's the salvation of the soul. Yet the disciples still hold on to hope that maybe the Romans will fall. He rode on a donkey that none had ever ridden. He laid in a grave that none had ever laid. And he reigns on a throne that none of us could ever sit on. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, his trial, death, resurrection, and ascension are singular events without precedent and unrepeatable. Jesus is a king like no other. In the Gospel of John, verse 12, 
chapter 12, verse 12 to 13, it says this, talking about this same moment in history on Palm Sunday. The next day, the great, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. If you're wondering where the palm branches come in for Palm Sunday, here it is. John chapter 12. We see this significance of palms in, God, in John's, John's gospel. Palm trees were actually a, a very uh, important symbol in Jewish culture and in the Roman Empire as well. It, palm trees were a symbol of steadfastness and were associated with rulers. One of the judges within the Old Testament time, Deborah, would judge people in Israel under a palm tree. It spoke to her prominence as a ruler. Also in King Solomon's temple, uh, King Solomon's palace, sorry, we see the symbol of palm trees all around it. It spoke to this royal, royal symbol. Palm trees, palm leaves were a sense of judgment, authority, and rulership. The symbol of the palm branches were used in many celebrations, including when the rededication of the temple was done by the Jews. They used palm branches. We see this image of royalty, authority, and the prominence of the temple of God throughout Jewish history associated with palms. The palm branches signified kingship, authority. Yet again, we see the symbolism of a king is coming. Luke 19 verse 36 also says this, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. We see this, the people are also spreading cloaks on the road, which also alludes to Jewish history in the book of two kings, where when a king called Jehu was established on the throne to show allegiance, people placed cloaks at his feet. And so the significance of the cloak and the significance of the palm branches speaks to the fact that this is a king coming into Jerusalem. This is a king. Some scholars actually believe that why, God, why Luke's gospel leaves out the symbol of the palm branches is because he didn't want to lead it to a political movement. Now, why do I say that? Palm branches in Roman context was actually a sign of political power. After the destruction of the temple and the uh, conquering of uh, Judea by the Romans after Christ's death and resurrection in 70 AD, they had coins that, they, that said, Judea has been overcome, we've conquered it. And the symbol that they had was the palm branch. And so often in Roman context, the palm branch also signified politics. And what Luke was trying to do in writing his Gospels was trying to convince people that Jesus wasn't a political king. He didn't come to be king in political power. Even in this procession, we see this underlying theme that Jesus' followers were hoping a king would still overthrow Rome. The palm branches still had these allusions to military might and political power. How often in our declaration of Jesus being king do we also passively place our own agendas in the midst of our praise? Like, think about it. This is what they were doing. The disciples were praising, like the crowds were praising. They were praising Jesus as king, but for agendered purposes. 
And how often when we are in our moments of praising Jesus Christ as king, do we passively have this idea that his kingship has to fit into our box? In the midst of our praise, in the midst of our praise, we put him into a box and we say, I'm going to praise you as king over this particular circumstance. And we narrow his rule and reign down to what we would have him do for us, working according to our kingdom, rather than letting him rule and reign as king over a kingdom that he established, not just through his ministry, but through his death and resurrection. Even in their praise and even in ours, we try to fit Jesus in a box. In Luke 19, 37 to 38, it says this, When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The praise that the disciples began to sing out was not a new song. This, this declaration, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, like they didn't just write that on the spot. Like this isn't a new song. Actually, if you read Psalm 118, you see this song is something that they're declaring. Why is this important? Psalm 118 was used particularly at commem- like in co- commencement, commemoratory. What's the word? Com- when they walk in as king. Anemone. <laughs> coronation that's none none of those (laughs) in a king's coronation often this psalm was sung like they would sing as a king would come in either to offer sacrifice in the temple they would sing psalm 118 but it was also sung over the traveling pilgrim entering into jerusalem however there's a there's a difference in what the disciples are declaring there's a little bit of copyright issues here They did something in this verse. Psalm 118 verse 26 says this. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what the disciples sang. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Did you notice the difference? One word. One word they changed. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Is Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Is what the disciples cried out. They're taking this psalm of praise and in a way they're trying to communicate this fulfillment of the praise of their Jewish culture by declaring that this is the one. This is the king. This one that's writing right now, the one that we've been singing about for generations, it's this guy. It's the guy on the donkey. This is the king. For so long, The Jews have been waiting for a king to come. For so long, they've been waiting for a Messiah to save them from their slavery. For so long, they've been singing this song. And here the disciples are singing this over Jesus and fulfilling the praise of generations. He's here. The king has come. He's here. This is the guy. Like, have you ever had a song written about you? This song is about Jesus. They didn't know it up until this moment. But this song is about Jesus. It speaks to the one who is to come and is now answered by the disciples saying he's here. This isn't them just going, when is he coming? They're answering the question of waiting. 
that they've been sitting in for generations. Not just in the name of the Lord, but who is the Lord himself. This is not just any pilgrim coming into Jerusalem. This is the king who comes. There's so much of Israel's history and custom tied into Palm Sunday. There's so many parallels, and there's more that I didn't even touch on, which I really wanted to, but Jason's like, we need to shorten the sermon. And I'm like, but this is really cool. (laughs) There's so many parallels to the Old Testament, to the hopes and the desires of the Jewish people that we see fulfilled in the procession of Palm Sunday. There's so much evidence. Literally, it's like staring everyone in the face, being like, wow, like that really ties that passage together. (laughs) It's literally staring the disciples and the Pharisees in their face. There is so many things that the religious elite would have seen in this moment and it would have spoken to their history, it would have spoken to their custom, it would have spoken to their religion. And the fact is that no matter how much evidence is in front of us at times, we can still deny that he's king. No matter how many times he's showed up as king in your life and there's evidence of his kingship in your life, we all will at some point deny him being king. The evidence is outstandingly obvious to the Pharisees, to the disciples, but they're so blinded by keeping Jesus in their own box that they choose to deny what his kingship actually means, what it actually does. How many times in your life has Jesus the king proved himself as king to you. Not that he needs to prove himself, by the way. But how many times has Jesus showed up and proved that he's king in your life? And it's evidence that he's king, yet you still deny him complete sovereignty in your life. You still compartmentalize Jesus to a box and say, you can be king over this because I don't know what to do with that, but I think I've got this covered. We place him in a box and we say, yeah, I know there's a lot of evidence, Jesus, that you're king, but not today. I think I'm just going to do things my way. That's what the disciples did. That's what the Pharisees did. They all denied Jesus at some point. They all were, when, when Jesus died, on the cross, the disciples were like, there goes our mission. They literally were so like not sure what to do because they had hoped that they, the Jews would be freed from the Roman Empire. Now they were. Not in the way they hoped, but in the way that only a king who reigns in victory, righteousness and humility would do. All the evidence points to Jesus as the coming king. You can't deny it, yet still we do. Why? Because we want to reign our own lives. We don't want him to be our king. We don't want to put our allegiance towards him. Because the truth of the matter is, at times we find find fulfillment in the sinful world. We think it satisfies us, but that well is very 
very shallow. No matter how much evidence people have about his kingship, you could probably even think about moments where he's shown up as king in your life. Do we still place him as king? It's not by our praise or by our denial that determines he's king. It's by the fact that he is. No one else is able to be the type of king that reigns in humility. No one else can overcome a grave that has never been overcome. No one else is able to sit on the throne of glory that he does. No other king can reign in righteousness. No other king can reign in victory. And no other king can reign in humility like King Jesus. But what happens when the music fades? At some point, the celebration ended. At some point, the singing stopped. At some point, the donkey got tired. What, what about that moment? That moment of when the music fades and the celebration ceases and you go back to your mundane everyday living. That's what the disciples would have done. That's what the crowd would have done. It would have been a great celebration and then it's like, I've got to go because I've got to put the roast chicken on because we've got family coming over for dinner. What do you do in that moment? What do you do in the moment when all the celebration stops? Do you remove him off his throne of glory in your life? Do you see, thanks Jesus for a great time of hanging out with you as king. I've got to go do the real work now. I've got kids to feed, I've got taxes to pay, I've got jobs to do, I've got nails to paint. When that music fades, do we still place him as king? Do we still let him to reign in authority in our lives? Because it's very easy to be a part of a celebration. And it's a beautiful thing. That's why it's so significantly pointed out. But what happens in the nothing moments? What happens in the mundane? When you have to go back to your everyday living, what happens when Sunday ends? Does the victory of the cross just diminish in your life? Or does he still sit on the throne of glory, reigning over every aspect of your life? Because Jesus didn't want you to just live for the celebrations. He wanted you to live every single moment of every single day acknowledging that he is a king like no other. Why don't you stand with me, church? So what do we do with the days lying ahead? What do we do when we go about our business, when we disperse, when we go into our homes, we go into our work, what do we do with that? It's a hard thing because sometimes you just need help, right? That's okay. I need help like every day. I got three kids. We do, we need help. And that's where we can remember that he is our advocate, that he is our healer. But those things are not separate from the fact that he is our king. He is the king. The king of heaven and earth.
seated on high in glory. And just like the disciples and the Pharisees, sometimes all you might see is evidence of it. But evidence of his kingship should acknowledge that he is king and should bring about your praise. We're going to enter into worship again as we declare that Jesus is king. This is a day where we declare, where we celebrate all hell, King Jesus. He's come. He's come. And as we worship and as we spend time with the King of Kings, as we sit, as Jana said, at his table, because there is space for us, invite him into the moments when the music has faded. Invite him into the moments where the celebration has ceased. Invite him into that space. Why don't you close your eyes? Jesus Christ, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you sit on a throne of glory, and we give you honor. We celebrate today the declaration that you made as you rode into Jerusalem crowned as a king in humility and victory and righteousness. We celebrate you today, Jesus, remembering the deeds that you have done throughout scripture and throughout our own lives. We remember you today, Jesus, as king. And so we come to you as king this morning. We approach you with all honor and all praise because you are a king like no other. So Jesus, would you break open the boxes that we've put you in? Would you permeate every aspect of our life where we've compartmentalized you to Sunday service or to life group or to moments where it seems to make sense? Would you be king in the moments where it doesn't make sense? So as we enter into praise of your name, break open the boxes that we've put you in. We submit to you as our king, a good king, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.